HTML is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is Thor Magnadoodle. No, not quite. Odinson Etch-A-Sketch. Thor Fraggle Rock. Yes, Thor Fraggle Rock. The last time we saw Uncle Matt, um, what was happening? The other day. So, I actually don't think we covered any of the actual film itself, and that's because there was so much background and context to apply to this movie. I'm so excited to talk about it because it really does feel like a totally different creature than the rest of the Marvel Universe. It has such a unique perspective, and I really love what it brought to the table. It's such a unique creature, but it's not completely foreign or alien from the rest of the Marvel Universe. If anything, it is an indication of the growth of the Marvel Universe. We talked a lot about how originally this film was going to lean more heavily into the Ragnarok elements and feature more of the classical Shakespearean mythology themes that there were in the original film and Thor the Dark World. And instead what we got was some sort of post-80s nightmare octane-fueled beautiful disaster. And it's incredible and it's wonderful. My only real complaint is, again, Ragnarok feels like it has nothing to do with the Sakaar plot. And I think an indication of how strange this film is and how strangely the plot is managed is right off the bat this... I'm back, bitches! Hi, Claire! Uh, are we still talking about that hunk, Chris Hemsworth? Sort of. You know, I heard he's making a third Thor movie. It's like, do we really need three? Uh, yes we do, so shut up. <laughs> opening sequence of thor confronting this giant devil guy and battling all of these dudes it's like nine and a half minutes before we get the title card and thor is bifrosted out back to asgard like nearly 10 minutes of this film it's not even just that for me it's funny it's funny right away the second this movie opens up thor is wisecracking and i love him i love it it's already adorable and it's the thor i wanted him to be Thor is meant to be a little bit funny and poke fun at himself. That's the best version of a character like this. And I kind of feel like, even if that is nine and a half minutes, that is nine and a half minutes that is a knockout from the start. You're not wrong there. It gives Chris Hemsworth a really amazing spotlight as this character who, as we've said before, we're not sure how much longer his tenure as this character is. So it's really amazing to give Chris Hemsworth this whole opening monologue and platform to portray this character it really is about putting thor in new territory ultimately i found this movie to be about responsibility and i'll get into that more as the film progresses but this movie is about everybody owning up to their responsibility and i really enjoy that because this is not a movie that could star the first film's thor this movie mm. requires this thor and thor is hundreds of years old so for him to have done so much growing in the last few years is really interesting and definitive, but who knows how much time it's been for Thor? Who knows how time passes differently in every realm? I don't necessarily assume that Thor is, you know, 40 years older. I don't think this is like Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, and you just kind of have to deal with the sliding age timeline. But I think this is the first time I'm going to say, yes, this character feels like he's grown. Thor at the beginning of The Dark World, just feels maybe a little bit less frat boy, but no less youthful spirit. Here, this Thor is like, all right, life's hard. I don't have patience for this, Surtur. Let's just do it. Thor in Thor the Dark World is still very much about questing and adventure, and Thor in Ragnarok kind of seems like he just wants everyone to like be at peace and everyone to be okay. And he's the one who's dragging everyone else to be responsible. It's funny. So many can be compared to it, but I think in some ways this could be compared to The Wizard of Oz. He just wants to get home to Kansas, and he just wants to get home to Asgard and 
do his duty and take care of his responsibilities and save Asgard, whereas a lot of the previous films and Thor stories have been about him running away from those responsibilities. But he forces Valkyrie and Bruce and Loki even into being responsible and doing the right thing. He wants to do the right thing the entire time of this film. People just keep getting in his way. And I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but he actually never says, like, I'm going to go find my father and force him back onto his throne or anything. He says, I'm going to find my father and bring him home. It's really important that this Thor is such a different Thor. And he has a sense of humor that the previous Thor never had. And it's just, it's really, really great. And that plays into the dramatically wonderful opening scene on Asgard. Yes. Unfortunately, we're immediately greeted with Scourge, though, and I can't make heads or tails of this character most of the time. Sometimes it feels like his sole purpose in this entire film is to give Hela someone to expologue to. She just basically gives him all the exposition. He's just there to stand there and listen for most of it. He's really annoying, and seeing somebody else at Heimdall's station at the start of this film really jarred me. I didn't like him as a juxtaposition to Thor and the action that was going on with Thor. And at one point, he's using a freaking shake weight. Like, how old is this movie? Are you serious? Part of what I found irritating about Scourge is Scourge replaces basically all of the Asgardians. We lose Sif and the Warriors 3 for most of the film, even though they've been underutilized. Even in the first movie where they had all their spotlight, they've been underutilized. Mm. But Scourge gives us a boot-looking piece of shit, I guess. Because I would never want to see that of Volstag or Hogan or Fandral or Sif. And I know you're not introducing my Balder to do that to him. Uh. So, yeah, Scourge makes sense. It could be Scourge. It could be Tyr. You know, there's a bunch of random, rando. You could just do it with whoever. This is a situation where I think they believed that by making it a character that had existed in the comics, there would be some sense of familiarity, and so you could get away with him just being like, we fought together at Vanaheim, and be like, sure, but you only care about a sniveling betrayer's redemption if you've seen enough of them sniveling and betraying. It almost feels like Scourge's role was supposed to be played by Loki, but they wanted to go heavier on Loki being a good guy, maybe? I don't know, but Scourge only would have worked for me if we had seen him at least, if we'd actually seen him in Thor The Dark World. But having never seen this character before, I don't like him right off the start. I don't care that he sides with Hela, and I don't care that he then does the right thing. It's way too quick a character arc for me to care about this person, honestly. I'd rather have just cut directly to more Loki stuff and have fun with that. I can't argue with that because I feel like he's meant to be like a just kind of catch-all for everyone in Asgard who were going to be ultimately denied for the majority of the film. Because as much as I love Valkyrie, and I love Valkyrie, I love her in the comics, I love her here, Tessa Thompson brings something to the table that I feel like we haven't been able to get from a lot of the supporting cast of the Marvel films for the most part, they play off of and into the, for lack of a better term, ego of the main character. I do not feel like Valkyrie is playing into Thor. I kind of sometimes feel like Thor is in Valkyrie's movie. And that's a really cool thing for a supporting character to be able to bring. It's an attitude. And I think that's why she clicked in a way that Lady Sif never did. Not that Lady Sif doesn't kick ass. Not that Lady Sif isn't incredible and unbelievable. But she's not the same kind of wowza as Valkyrie. She doesn't really stand out the way Valkyrie does, and that's not an insult, because neither do any of the Warriors 3, and that's what their roles are supposed to be. It just so happens that Valkyrie is a breakout hit, which, for me, is always wild, because I remember Tessa Thompson's early work and her role on Season 2 of Veronica Mars, which uh, not a lot of fans of the show were favorable of, so to... To see Jackie have become Valkyrie, it's always wild to see how these young stars end up developing in their careers. And I think what's a testament to just how dynamic and tremendous we think her performance is, is we are discussing it before we're anywhere near that part of the film. Mm. That tells us that we are impressed by this character to just such an extent, because you wouldn't, we didn't talk about anybody else like this. We didn't run out of order for anyone else. But speaking of completely underrated performances, let's discuss some of the most underrated performances 
in this film, specifically Matt Damon as Loki, Luke Hemsworth as Thor, and Sam Neill as Odin in Loki's little play. This whole sequence is so awesome and so entertaining and immediately sets the tone for Loki is not as evil as we had perhaps thought that he might be based on the ending of Thor the Dark World. There's no arguing that they went out of their way to, I want to say, gentlify Loki. That opening sequence with it's this play and it's, you know, Loki, I will sing your story. And it's this beautiful, dramatic, everything about it. And Anthony Hopkins just kills it as Tom Hiddleston as Loki as Anthony Hopkins as Odin. Oh, yeah. That moment where he sees Thor and he goes, shit. I'm like, oh, my God. He's great. It's a really gentle but humorous and they hit something magical by letting these characters be so silly and so wonderful here because they've been so dramatic and so stern and so stark you know we still make jokes about (laughs) in the first movie when anthony hopkins hisses tom hiddleston into submission and here anthony hopkins is playing tom hiddleston's interpretation of loki playing his interpretation of odin And he does it in a way that I literally read as exactly that. You know, it's funny. When we were talking about Thor many, many moons ago, we compared them to a sort of like soapy, rich white people problems drama, sort of like the OC. And at this point now, it's kind of like they've gotten to the fourth season of the OC, where one of the characters has a French erotica novel written after them. And one person becomes a protester in a beaver costume and like... They just start going balls to the wall, like the final seasons of Family Matters weird. And they make a reference to Frog Thor at one point, which is, it sounds silly, but that's like such a magical special piece of comic canon. Walter Simonson's run is so beloved, and you're going to hear me talk about Walt Simonson a bunch on X's for Podcast, where he's going to come up a lot because his wonderful, incredible, brilliant wife, Wheezy Simonson, writes X-Factor and New Mutants, and she changed comics forever. Super amazing woman. And Super Amazing Guy, too. They had some phenomenal collaborations. The Celestials, actually. They did a big storyline involving the Celestials called Judgment War. And I know we brought the Celestials up on here before, so you never know when they're going to pop up in the Marvel Universe. But anyway, anyway, anyway. I think the other thing that's really important to get from this opening scene is Chris Hemsworth's comfort in the role of Thor by now. It's funny to say it but i do feel like there were times in the first movie that he would say things like we return to jodenheim and it it sounded a little bit like there's a there's an episode of fraser where they're doing a radio drama and fraser is over directing and he's like tearing at his chest and he's crying hysterically just to get this performance out of niles And Niles just gets so mad that he kills off everybody in the radio show. Sometimes I imagine that that's what Kenneth Branagh was doing to Chris Hemsworth on the set of Thor 1 because of just how tortured some of his delivery was. But it's the good kind of torture. It's the overacting that makes it work. It's Vincent D'Onofrio playing off of Charlie Cox, which is just one of the greatest things I've ever seen in terms of a superhero supervillain dynamic over on Daredevil, where the overacting is kind of necessary to the quality of the show. I do think overacting in Thor is necessary to the quality of Thor, but he's so relaxed in it now. He's juggling the hammer. He's kind of, I don't want to say that he's like checking his nails, but he's just about checking his nails. And I just think there's something so great about the way this cast is sort of like, yeah, number three. It's number three for a few of them. It's number five for a few of them. And that's really exciting. I mean, yeah, by this point, it was 2016, 2017, they were filming not even just the amount of films they had done, but just the amount of time that they'd been these characters, promoting these characters, thinking about these characters and playing these characters. They had really gotten into a stride. I mean, Tom Hiddleston was playing Loki in insurance commercials. Isn't Wasn't that a thing or was that a car commercial? The thing with the little kids, Chris Hemsworth and... Mark Ruffalo had appeared in a few shorts that were little joke videos that were played at Comic-Con, Team Thor, talking about what Thor was up to during Civil War. They're non-canon, which is why we haven't covered them in the show. It would be like covering the Spider-Man car commercials starring Tom Holland and J.B. Smoove. Like, 
they're fun, but they're not canon. But they're still playing the character, and they're still putting thought into the character and portraying them. And, you know, that's a lot of your life. And, you know, this film also encouraged a lot more improv from the actors. Apparently, Anthony Hopkins, a lot of the levity from Odin came from him, which is really cool. Because you don't expect it from Anthony Hopkins. You think of Anthony Hopkins and, and you think of this, you know, dramatic classic actor and you think of, you know, Oscars and Olivier's and you think of BAFTAs and you think of Hannibal Lecter. And instead, he's kind of goofing off and because like, it's so great. His performance is so great that I can imagine the scenes that had Anthony Hopkins instead being played by Tom Hiddleston. Like, I can just superimpose Tom Hiddleston's face into those scenes perfectly. Usually, like the image that I used for Thor The Dark World, Tom Hiddleston will step in and play the role, and then Chris Evans, or here, Anthony Hopkins, will step in and play based off of his performance. But you gotta be good at that. There's definitely actors who try and capture another actor's performance of a character, and they really just fall short. It's not their fault. It's hard. And you know what I loved? I loved the next thing they did because this movie starts I like there's not a boring minute in this movie. The next thing that happens that's so fucking great is when Thor and Loki hop off to the city to find their dad and it's, it's Thor's a celebrity and he's so excited and it's so fucking cute and well wait wait but hold on like I have questions though. I like I'm a little annoyed that someone immediately recognized Thor on the street. He's like wearing a jean jacket. That could have been any weird long-haired hippie. I'm just saying. I actually imagine that Asgardians radiate some sort of energy because like everyone who looks at him is just like he's a god and I'm not saying he's not. I'm really not. But in a world where in a world where bodybuilders look enough like gods that they get cast in Wonder Woman and everybody immediately becomes obsessed with Sergei Constance because he played Ares, I think we need to accept that there's something a little special about Asgardian. I just don't love it, but it's a really nice place for them to drop in. Sorry again to hear Jane dumped you and burn. That's awesome. I also loved, there's not a lot, a lot of attention drawn to it, but the fact that Thor is carrying around the hammer transformed into an umbrella on Earth so that it's not too conspicuous. They're going out of their way to do a bunch of cool hammer stuff before the hammer gets destroyed, and I think that that's real smart, because that's a prop that's part of the plot of this film, is Thor himself feels that this prop is so integral to his being. So it's good to get in what gags you can. And what I love about that moment as well is that when he would transform back into Donald Blake, back when he had an alter ego, Thor's hammer would transform into a walking stick. So this is a nice nod to that. Yeah. Now, to the Doctor Strange bits. Doctor Strange kind of, like, I don't know how else to put it, but, like, Doctor Strange runs fucking train on Thor with magic. I'm okay with it because Kevo has an interpretation. Now, I want to give my take on it because Kevo's interpretation really did calm me down. I maintained that I feel Doctor Strange is able to kind of magic thor all over the place and i imagine thor grew up in a world of sorcery and enchantment and i feel a little bit like he's getting noobed all over the place by a guy that we all sort of we all sort of agree got a little too good at what he did a little too fast and i'm not super furious about it but it feels a little inconsistent that if his brother is Loki, and Loki is like, literally the fucking god of mischief magic, you'd think that Thor wouldn't be like, ah, uh, ah, 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 uh. Like, he's like, just getting tiny tunes. Okay, Kevo, calm me down. I liked your little Lenny Bruce impression in the middle of that, first of all. Here's the thing about it, and here's something I do want to say first. This is from this movie. It's that Doctor Strange was written into Thor Ragnarok, and Scott Derrickson, director of Doc Strange liked it so much that he was like, let's preview this in Doc Strange. Let's put this in the mid-credits for Doctor Strange. But this is all from Thor Ragnarok, for the record. I noted while we were watching it, it literally seems like the film is sped up in this. I actually think it is, like, using that word correctly, literally faster here in Ragnarok. Probably because Doc Strange is a lot more atmospheric, slower film so they wanted to make it seem more dramatic 
there. I get even what you're saying, where Strange is a little bit too magical at Thor, but I really think it's mostly him posturing in front of a god. I think by the time the film has ended, Stephen Strange is in a place where he better understands dealing with power that is bigger with himself and how you gotta bob and weave and play what you have to your advantage. He is in his own home. He invited Thor here so he knows it better. And mostly what he's doing is picking at Thor and just keeping him off guard. If Thor paid attention and didn't let Strange get to him, he probably would be able to get his bearings better. But a lot of this film is about destabilizing Thor. It's what Sakaar is a lot too, keeping him destabilized. And speaking of destabilization, I actually want to make an argument in favor of the Marvel retcon of Loki's behavior via selective memory and also later movies. There's something interesting about the fact that Doctor Strange can immediately put the womp on Loki. And notice I didn't get annoyed about that earlier. I really do think Loki is like the master of mischief magic. I think Loki just tends to get up to no good. And I think it wasn't until he was lured to the dark side by Thanos and mind-controlled by a stone. I, I think he just got in deeper than he should have with Thanos and some mischief stuff because this Loki doesn't at any point like strike Doctor Strange down or blow up the house or even try to make a move. He just says, I have been falling for 30 minutes. Well, he's not given enough time. I think he's there for 10 seconds and Doc Strange... The magical equivalent of slams the door in his face by throwing the portal at them, which again is a bob and weave move. I think if Loki had been given more than that 10 seconds, there might have been at least a competent magic battle between the two of them. You actually made that point. You were like, yeah, Loki wouldn't have had any problem going up against Doc Strange. But that's why Doc shoved him out the door as quick as he did. I also love right before he did, I think... For as much as Strange really put Thor off balance, when Thor summons the umbrella back and it smashes through the entire Sanctorum, that really is Thor getting his power back a little bit, being like, yeah, you fucked with me, but don't think that I can't get mine back. And I did appreciate that. I thought their dynamic there was bouncy, and now I kind of need to pay attention and see if they ever see each other in... Infinity War, because I don't think they do. I think by the time Thor is out of reasonable space, <laughs> Doctor Strange is now in space, but Thor is off getting a pretty new hammer axe, which I do think it's so amazing that he doesn't get a new weapon this film. Well, he does. He gets looking sexy as fuck covered in lightning, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. First, we have to get to Loki and Thor finding their dad, which apparently was originally going to be very different and very awkward. Originally, it was going to take place on a New York street, and this is known by test audience footage and commercial footage. And ultimately, they moved all of it to a beautiful Norse Glen. Yeah, Odin was going to be living as a homeless vagrant on the street, and Taika Waititi saw it as they were nearing completion and was like this is super depressing they thought it would be funny and it's one of those things where i'm like how but instead that is why they moved it to norway they felt that that would spiritually connect a lot more with the source material i really loved that he mentioned thor's mom genuinely there was something really unfair about the sort of quick death of Freya, and I know Freya's never been the hugest deal in the comics. I'm not trying to say this was the chance to fix it, even though this was the chance to fix it. I am just happy at least that her death is mentioned here. She was a noble warrior, she died in a great battle, she helped rule the kingdom, and Odin felt he couldn't do it without her. And I'm glad that she was given her due and not just overlooked. I do too. I also love that there's a lot of tenderness between Odin and both of his sons. Loki's face when he says, I love you, my sons, plural, is really great. He's even almost proud of Loki and the enchantment that he put on him when he stuck him in the nursing home. But he's always known who both of his sons are and he just hoped that they could come together. And then Hela shows up, the overall book-ending antagonist of this film appears at about 23 minutes little bit of comic reference here. Hela is a different 
role in the Marvel Universe proper. Hela is also a different role in this, in mythology than this. This is more closely related to the very then-recent story of Angela. To explain Angela, when the team that formed Image split off from primarily Marvel, it was the biggest artists at the time who at that point, in order to be kept at Marvel and not break away, all had been given co-writing power and or full writing power in some capacity. This allowed them to hone their writing skills, and several of them, like Todd McFarland and Rob Liefeld, went over and formed Image. Now, Todd McFarland, when he formed Image, said that it would be everybody gets creator-owned rights and it was going to be a new age and he got the biggest names in comics to come and write Spawn because he was not the world's greatest writer. He got Alan Moore, he got Neil Gaiman, and Neil Gaiman used his power as a writer on uh, one or two issues of Spawn to create the Spawn mythos and and Angela and that Spawn is a warrior from like hell powers and stuff and evidently never received any royalties for it and Todd McFarlane was like no 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 it's work for hire and so Neil Gaiman took him to court and it was ultimately ruled in Neil Gaiman's favor and for whatever reason Todd McFarlane didn't get the hint and he created exact copies of everything and just didn't use the exact word-for-word characters that Neil Gaiman had created. Neil Gaiman brought him back to court, and the judge read every issue. This judge, she was amazing. She read every issue of Spawn to understand the argument as as well as anybody could. And she ultimately ruled in Neil Gaiman's favor to the point where Angela belonged to Neil Gaiman again. And he sold her to Marvel in exchange to get to be the one to write Miracle Man, which had at one point been called Marvel Man, and it had been his first big work taking over for Alan Moore, and he had wanted to get his hands back on that property for years and years. So that's a little bit of weird comic history. But anyway, once Neil Gaiman sold Angela to Marvel, Marvel had it be revealed that she was this, Loki and Thor's sister, who had been lost to another realm She's still running around the Marvel Universe. She's still interesting. She joined the Guardians of the Galaxy for a while, and now there's a book called As Guardians of the Galaxy. She's had her own title several times. It's been pretty cool. And that's basically what this is. So again, after last episode where we mentioned that Planet Hulk, not really this story. Once again, this, not really this story, but for all intents and purposes, it works on every level. And that's been your comic book background. But so she's not evil in the comics. She's just their long lost sister. Right, Angela isn't evil in the comics. Hella is hella evil. Interesting. Strange choice. And she's just in so little of this movie. Let's finish her introduction first. Uh, she's she's beautiful. She is that. So much of this film is beautiful and visually stunning. The crumbling of Mjolnir, the Bifrost fight, all of Hella's movements, just all, all, it's all fucking beautiful, for sure. And that's part of what makes the scene so powerful. Thor has this, being honest with you, dramatic but also sexually charged moment where he transforms by lightning into Thor, and then he throws Mjolnir, and Hela just crushes it. She just crushes it to little pieces. That was such an iconic moment that my first year cosplaying Thor, that was a picture I took with someone who's now my friend, Anthony. He's super cool, big fan of Marvel. He's a great guy, cool cosplayer. And we took a him crushing my hammer picture, and it's... So interesting how everybody holds on to one of the only scenes in the movie that has the hammer in it, but the movie still manages to function so well without the hammer. One of the only scenes that has the hammer and one of the few scenes that has the character, and yet it is one of the most iconic images from the Thor franchise, many would say. I'd watch Chris in a thousand Thors as long as he has a big hard hammer. Am I right, bitches? also think it's important to note that after the hammer is destroyed, Loki immediately defends and protects Thor and pulls him away through the Bifrost to get him away from Hela. He says, Thor, no, and, you know, take us home. And, uh, and we get a fucking, like, it looks like playing a level of Sonic. It looks like Makalania Woods from Final Fantasy X, this incredible rainbow flight magical path. 
that was one of the coolest moments of the film that I had forgotten until watching the second time was like an actual Bifrost fight. See, my point of reference is a little bit more like it looks like the warp pads from Steven Universe, but that's because I'm a child. But it's fun and I loved it. The thing I think I was not expecting the most from this watch of the MCU was what a big Loki fan I would become. I've really become a huge Loki defender. I think it was the connecting point of being told that there was some amount of mind control that was making him hella cray in the Avengers. I understand that he's still a villain, but I think that he tries to come around and tries to do his best and he's just really friggin' dumb, like summoning the Bifrost, which would just bring Hela directly to Asgard, which is what you were just told not to do. Stupid. I'm not crazy about the next moment immediately taking out two of the three warriors. I think that's a little too dramatic. Like, I don't... Does Volstagg even have a line of dialogue? Does he just, like, shout no and then dies? Fandral only grunts as he is stabbed to death, and that's what Zachary Levy was paid for. Volstagg gets out about half a sentence before Hela kills him. Hogan not in this scene. No, my my wonderful sexy Hogan is not in this scene. He's when we come back to Hela, and he talks a bunch there. But yeah, he's ultimately killed real horrible. So we get to Sakaar, and Thor is pretty immediately nearly kidnapped by some Jawa and a senator from Naboo till Valkyrie shows up drunk. Which I actually love. So much about Valkyrie is such a male-dominated... Like, so many traits that Valkyrie portrays are male-dominated. Her being drunk, but still completely competent because she's drunk but she wins and i love it she's like this very captain jack type character and which one pick any of them torchwood pirate your call captain jack the ddr character captain jack will get you high tonight so yeah at this point i just accept that thor isn't doing well because he's like super madly off his game he's been through so much and you know, he probably believed his hammer was an indestructible element of who he is, and now it's, like, destroyed and he's completely thrown by it. I cracked my phone recently, and it set me on a spiral, so I get it, Thor. That's completely the same thing as your centuries-old hammer being destroyed. Especially because it really does become just, like, such a part of you. I, I think what I'm also interested in is the next time we see Hela, she's just really chill. She's not the over-the-top Marvel Universe villain we're used to. At no point did she ever say, But Thor survives everything! With long hair and a hammer! Like, she's never ridiculous. Yeah, she never especially loses her cool at any point in this film. She shows emotion and she expresses herself, but she's not so overdramatic as a character like the God of Death would so frequently be portrayed. And it's not really a question why she would be this powerful, because that's you're the god of death of course you would be that that deadly and this is where we get my precious hogan and he's dealt with maybe a little too about it for my taste my precious my precious hogan i also think everything about the body count that they racked up in this movie they knew infinity war was coming i wonder if they said to watiti you know what go crazy because you aren't doing a movie that is going to be the movie with the impact so if you want to kill these people you can we're gonna kill so you can kill whoever you want before we kill everyone we all know what happens at the start of infinity war all of these asgardians are probably dead anyway most at least if not all so any amount could have been taken out during this film and over the course of it we get thor in the robo chair and i love thor in the robo makeover chair i think it's real hot I think they do a lot of really interesting things. I love that they use the term Contest of Champions, which we will be covering over on X's for Podcast. It's a famous comic book arc. It's the first time Marvel ever tried a crossover. It's actually the first ever Marvel crossover, and it was to sell toys. It brought Captain Britain to the United States for the second time ever, and it was a cool promotional idea. It was three issues. It involved the Grandmaster, and so it was really cool that they referenced it here. Yeah, I love the whole sequence. It kind of reminds me of Ego's backstory from Guardians Volume 2 in terms of a delightful new exposition device. It was a lot of fun. It reminded me of Disney Parks attractions as well as obviously the parallel being a nightmare tunnel from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And then we finally get the Grandmaster at 
36 minutes and 30 seconds into the film. Hello, Jeff Goldblum. Except it's our second time seeing the fucking Grandmaster because he showed up in the credits to Guardians 2. Yeah, that was weird. I do think at this point we've watched Thor get his ass kicked a number of times, which I'm fine with because we still get moments like this where he breaks the cuffs because even if he's strapped down, he's still masculine, powerful, and indestructible. And magically strong. So I I agree. I really like showing him breaking the restraints to show that he's not completely helpless, but he still doesn't escape, so he's not completely overpowerful either. At this point, we start to get what I'm going to refer to as adorable childlike naive Thor a little bit more frequently throughout the film. Every time Thor sees someone he knows, he's very, oh, oh, it's my friend. And it's uh, it's an intense treat to give Thor. Yeah, act like you've been somewhere before. But at the same time, you know what? Think about the joke reaction that the Warriors 3 have to finding him in the first Thor movie. They're like banging on the glass window and being like, hello, we found you. Well, you know, that's just, I guess, a trait in that friend group. Or it was, RIP. We also get Korg, and I love Korg, so I'm really excited to get Korg. Yeah, portrayed by director Taika Waititi. Really fun portrayal. He sounds just like the guy who does the voice of Karan from Voltron on Netflix, so that is who I kept thinking plays Korg, but no, it is Taika Waititi, apparently. We get more Hela, and, you know, I think she's performed really well. I think she's executed really well. Ultimately, she's not a villain that you can get behind. I do love when she's like, fake Infinity Gauntlet, and throws it away. Yeah, it's like we were saying earlier. She's not too hyper over dramatic. You know, she's got the really dark look to herself, but she doesn't hiss like her dad does or anything horribly dramatic like that. So when Loki finally does come to his brother, I really love that he comes as a hologram because it sort of mirrors the way Thor comes to Loki in the Dark World. And Loki is all like, no, look, brother, I'm still totally normal. And you know, Thor's like, show some sadness. And Loki's like, are you happy now? I'm sitting in the corner and I'm crying. And it's kind of like that, but decidedly different because this took all the melodrama out of Thor and replaced it with wacky humor and it worked. Yeah, and it was really fun to see the continuing bond and evolution of these characters' relationship. I feel like at this point, things start to drag for a couple of minutes, though. The film starts to slow down until we get into the gladiator arena. There's some cute moments when Thor is trying to explain his backstory. I love the joke of Korg getting confused and saying, oh my god, a hammer pulled you off? Because I I don't know that everyone would necessarily get what the slang of pulled you off means. So that's one of those... 79ing is 10 better jokes that are really awesome when they're able to get them past the censors. You know, there's some language things that I think Nico was talking about this when we were watching the movie, how there are idioms that don't necessarily translate into alien. Thor is saying to Valkyrie that it's about time that there's an elite women warrior force. But like he said he wanted to be a Valkyrie when he was a little boy, so they predated him. So why would he be saying it's about time when they're hundreds of years older than him? I get that our modern sensibility makes that joke because, you know, that's what men say when there's powerful women. But why would Thor be saying that? It's like during the scene where he meets the Grandmaster, he says, oh my god. A god saying, oh my god, is kind of weird. Maybe it's just spending too much time around humans, which is part of what's made him so much more natural and jovial and sarcastic and one of the things that we love the most about him. But it also creates that odd disconnect of why would he say that, you know? Yeah, I actually thought some of the relaxed dialogue did work. I agree with you that there's too many that are compromising. It just it takes you a little bit too far out of it. But I really love when he's like, I'm going to spun it really, really fast. Like, I love the oh, delivery yeah. on that. Also, so my dad is such a classic Thor fan from way back. And he sort of like has a problem with Thor screaming in fear about getting his hair cut. I think it actually works. I think it's just meant to be funny and silly. And it gives you your stamio. And it gives us that haircut. It's just been such a fucking long day. And you know he hasn't gotten a haircut in like a thousand years. And I didn't want to go bald. Buddy, I get it. I get being upset about losing the hair that you like. It was part of who you are. You lost your fucking hammer today. You can't keep one thing, really. But, buddy, buddy, it worked out for you. You traded up. It's okay. 
And I love the helmet so much. Yes. I think it's a really cool piece and it's a nice nod to his classic look. And then one of the best things, and it's from the commercial, you know, Thor's excitement to see his friend. I also want to point out that whole my friend from work thing evidently was a young Make-A-Wish patient's dream. And like he suggested that line to Chris Hemsworth and Chris Hemsworth was like, use it in the movie. Yeah, it was a Make-A-Wish kid was visiting the set and suggested it while they were filming the scene. And then it ends up in the trailer. And then it's, again, one of the most iconic moments. And yet it comes almost halfway through the entire film. I don't know. What did you think of this, of this round two of Thor versus the Hulk? I love that Hulk is looking more and more like Mark Ruffalo. It's really interesting. He's getting a little bit more sexual. I think the, I think the chest hair in this movie was a little suggestive, guys. So I just want that on the record. I love when he says, I lost my hammer like yesterday, so that's still pretty fresh. I think this battle was pretty good. And I think it drives home the point that Thor can still kick ass even if he doesn't have his hammer. But I love that they bring in the sun's getting pretty low, big guy. And then they beat the shit out of it through the rest of the film to the point where Bruce is like, stop saying that, which I love that. I thought it was hilarious. And I don't even think it was undercut by the Hulk then smashing him. It really was even a great emotional moment there when he first attempts it. I love Loki shouting, that's how it feels when Thor is getting smashed by Hulk. That was hilarious, both on the level of wanting revenge and adding to the atmosphere of this being like a wrestling match, like on Earth. Tom Hiddleston's performance throughout this entire scene is so great when he clearly wants to run away when Hulk shows up. He's like, oh, shit. Like, he's just so struck. Once we see Thor manifest those lightning powers to fight Hulk, we kind of ultimately know that these are going to be his new hammer for the movie. And it's such a dynamic, interesting change for him. It forces us to see him as a different kind of fighter than he's been. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, this is Thor post hammer and now we're gonna start getting into seeing him developing some freaky powers first we go back to hella again hella's like tell me about yourself scourge and i i literally wrote down why why would we need to know what scourge's backstory is who cares but i will say a lot of people have questioned her needing an executioner when she's the god of death like that's on some cracked listicle or something but like she explains it pretty well. She even herself says she knows she doesn't need one as the god of death. It's just like an honorific. It's something to make us feel like this character is significant. Because he's not. Also, then we get Heimdall! Yeah, finally. You know, I actually didn't realize until the Bifrost sword was missing when they say that it is, that it wasn't Scourge who took it earlier in the film. I thought he just grabbed it. I get it now, obviously. And now here's Heimdall. I wonder if Sif would have been involved in this underground resistance thing if she'd been available for filming. I would love to have known that. That would have been interesting. We get the Hulk sauna scene where Hulk makes Thor look at his dick. It is a specific move. It is a big green power dick move. And I think Thor plays it in a way that's like, I didn't need to see a big green monster penis. Not so much like, oh man, I'm humbled. Like, Thor is just like, oh, I didn't need to see that. He's not like, oh, it's really interesting because we will go out of our way to note in Infinity War that Star-Lord is kind of like, what do you mean he's a god at Thor a lot? So it's really interesting to see that in the mm. previous film, Thor is just not ruffled by it. Mm, yeah, it's an interesting scene. It's a fun scene. I like the weirdly cute bond that Hulk and Valkyrie have. That's fun. I don't love the hulk in this movie the hulk or banner they're both kind of bitchy and whiny and rude and mean and it's not great and i mean i know that hulk is mostly id driven so obviously there's going to be some amount of that i do find the characterization of hulk really interesting though this is the most that we have ever seen the hulk as a character before it even comes across in the the silliness but it's still emotional stuff like you're the stupid Avenger, tiny Avenger. Yeah. Like I know it's silly, but it's actually emotional and it's kind of legitimate. I actually enjoy the dynamic there. Yeah. Earth does hate you. Ah, weirdly emotional, but really nice. Then we see Thor develop Heimdall eyes and have a little force connection scene a la Rey and Kylo Ren from 
Last Jedi, where they're astrally projecting and talking to each other. That was a weird thing that just doesn't get much explanation, but that's fine. You know, all spark. It's all good. We get Heimdall saying again that Hela draws her power from Asgard in case you didn't get that no Asgard cannot survive this film. And it shouldn't. The movie is called Ragnarok. That should be clear. I also enjoy, once we do get Banner, one of the things that's really interesting is you see for the first time that he's afraid. Like, he cannot believe how much time he lost as Hulk this last time. And they bring so many things together. I'm so impressed with how they handled Hulk and Black Widow because I never saw that and I really didn't dig it at first, but... I love how it's used here, even. I wonder if Scarlett Johansson got paid $500,000 for this clip from Avengers Age of Ultron, though, because I know how those things work sometimes. That would be really funny. I will at least give that they do a lot of interesting stuff with Hulk and Bruce Banner. I love that Hulk chases Thor down, saying, friends, stay. It's interesting to show the softer side of an id-driven character like the Hulk wanting his friend, even though we had just seen him being aggressive toward Thor. I also love that Thor says strongest Avenger twice for the voice code before giving in and trying point break. And I love that Bruce doesn't even say, he says banner and the computer greets him strongest Avenger. That means that Tony programmed him as strongest Avenger. Bruce didn't call himself that. Really interesting points of psychology for these characters in this film. That scene where he comes home from battle and has his shirt off. <laughs> yum, 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 yum. <laughs> wow, you really know a lot about that movie Thor. And Blair. that sexy red cape of his always brushing against his big butt. <laughs> oh, to be that cape. Am I right, bitches? I love Valkyrie at this point. When we start to get Valkyrie's backstory and we start to understand who she is. I also love that loki gets in some good strikes against her i don't know i feel like loki gets his ass kicked all movie, so i like that loki gets in a few good hits and it's cool to see him using magic in battle and that being part of his technique she ultimately overpowers him though so that's pretty awesome about it as well and that whole flashback is like a full minute long that's pretty cool i wish there had been more you know focus on her queerness but Hey, at the very least, we got driven away from the sexiness between Valkyrie and Thor, and that's pretty cool. I enjoy the use of Revengers here. That's actually a thing from the comics that is not this, but I think the name is cute. And that nearly brings us to Safe Passage Through the Anus. Yeah, it's 1 hour 27 and 56 minutes when Korg says, well, I guess the revolution has begun, and things keep a pretty steady clip throughout the rest of the film even though the action is very disjointed between what exactly is going on and and what everyone's goals are first we have i need help in the elevator it's a really cute scene between thor and loki in the elevator i feel like he genuinely does want loki to be happy and thinks he can be happy here on sakaar and i hate loki's betrayal i know it's made up for in the end when he shows up as the cavalry and that's nice but Dude, you're never helping yourself. The betrayal circle is both wonderful and terrible and terrible and wonderful. It just does get to be like, it's never too much, but I I always walk away going, okay, one more would have been too much. I think the better thing would have been to have had it where I didn't realize one more would have been too much. And then we get the incredibly short chase sequence. I feel like I remembered this being longer than it was, but if you don't count from when they enter the devil's anus, that's a great sentence. It's only like three minutes. It's fun, though. I would have expected more crude humor from them being on an orgy barge, but I do love the fireworks and the, it's my birthday! Everything about it really works for me. It's a pretty sweet speed for the movie to move at it. No point do I feel like it got weighed down. And once they're in Asgard, it flies to the ending. Yeah, once they get there, there's a flash before they arrive at Asgard where we see a little bit more of Heimdall and the Resistance and Hela plotting, and it's just plotting, but spelled with a D instead. Once we get to Thor on Odin's throne, ugh, sitting there looking all sexy daddy, tapping that fucking Odin staff. From there, it's a pretty steady pace up through the end. Once Thor loses the eye, you kind of get the idea that Odin is never coming back. And we do get that short exchange. But before that, 
We get Valkyrie looking amazing as a Valkyrie. And we get, your savior is here! Which is such an incredible moment. And I need to say, I love this moment for Banner, where he throws himself out of the plane and smashes down on the ground, but then hulks out anyway, which is what he needed to do. Oh my god, I actually, like, gasped real loud when that happened. I remembered that he doesn't transform, but I forget, oh my god, how they execute him smacking down on that rainbow bridge. It's hard. Real hard. I also enjoyed that they managed to give us... Simba, you have forgotten who you are, and in doing so, have forgotten me. And they didn't make it uber-painful. No, it's incredibly, incredibly short. I was really surprised by that. It's under two minutes, and normally in films like this, that can be like a three to fiver. Anthony Hopkins is in so little, but does so much with the time that he is given in this film. It's all memorable. It's all great. Of course, he tells Dorothy that the power was inside her all along, and she just needs to click her heels, and all of Asgard will be saved. And we get the immigrant song. Again, I had read that another writer from the original Thor said that he wanted to use the immigrant song as early as that. So that makes it even more poignant that it gets used here as a theme for Thor as he rides into battle. One of the things I love the most about it is there's this moment where Thor's lighting up the sky like a fucking Disneyland fireworks show. And I've never seen Tom Hiddleston so capably convey an emotion And the emotion he conveys is, God, I am so happy to hate lightning right now. It's such a great moment. Yeah, it really is. I'm looking so forward to the Disney Plus Loki series. Apparently it's going to be some kind of, like, mischief Loki has gotten up to on Midgard throughout time. So we're going to get, like, a World War II story with Loki. It's going to be fun stuff. He's great, and I've really come to appreciate the character. And once again, the movie comes back to being about responsibility, Thor's responsibility, Loki's, Valkyrie's, Heimdall's, even Scourge, who I don't feel like he's really a realized character, but I appreciate that he tries to get redemptive, and that's at least... But then he dies, so that makes me happy. Do you know what's really funny is even Hulk learns a lesson about responsibility. He tries to smash Surtur, and it's a little awkwardly filmed, the way that they're kind of shouting up at him. Like, he's got to be so far away from them that he can't really hear them. That part didn't really play well for me, but I love that they're like, don't smash! And Hulk has to learn that sometimes you can't smash your problems. You have to let your problems smash themselves. You get that whole, you know, Asgard as a people, not a place. And I think Asgard as a people, not a place is wonderful. It comes together really well. And I've been really positive on it. And I didn't get why Kevo had been, I'm going to use the phrase, hesitantly, nervously negative about it. And I'm like, no, the end of the movie was fine. I'd forgotten about the scene at the end where Thanos is upon them. And I thought that just was how Infinity War started. So I'd forgotten this ended on a, (gasps) but there was just finally happiness. So... Yeah, this movie, when it finally comes to the end, it's just like, you know, Asgard's destroyed, and then that's it. Everyone dies anyway. And I mean, it doesn't exactly happen directly there, but you know what's going to happen. You know that Thanos is the major villain for the upcoming film, and he's not going to let these people survive. It's especially upsetting because this was November, then we had Black Panther still in February, and didn't have Infinity War until late April, so you don't see the conclusion of this mid credit scene for a really long time. You're left hanging. I really feel like Black Panther and Thor should have been switched. I feel like Black Panther being between these two points isn't really fair to Black Panther. I don't know if maybe they wanted to give an Earth story right before Infinity War to... Bring us back home and think about the stakes of, you know, what could happen if Thanos wins. But I don't know. I really feel like so many of the films in the second half of Phase 3 are so much more focused on and pointed at Infinity War and Endgame and the conclusion of Ragnarok for certain points directly at Infinity War. I completely agree, and my heart is just so set on getting to this finish line. I'm so excited to see Black Panther, and I'm so excited to see Infinity War, and 
Ant-Man and Wasp and Captain Marvel again even so that we can get ready for Endgame because rewatching Ragnarok, I for the first time feel like I'm really seeing how this picture came together. I think I was really disillusioned by not enjoying, honestly, most of Phase 2 and certainly having trouble with bits of the beginning of Phase 3. I wasn't a big fan of Doctor Strange. I wasn't a big fan of Guardians Volume 2. So then I was not interested in seeing Spider-Man right away. So we were late on Spider-Man. We were late on Ragnarok. And then I ultimately think they're two of my favorites. I actually recently, with a little bit of help from our fearless leader, Joey, put together my list of my 21 films in order. And Kevo and I have a really exciting project coming up based on that. But I can say for sure, Ragnarok is either my number one or number two very comfortably. But most of my least favorite films are from the second phase. So... I finally get what they were trying to do because there is so much Thanos you kind of have to disregard really offhand to make a lot of phase three work. And I feel like Ragnarok is the best example of a movie working to help generate the right atmosphere to create the narrative they were trying to create. Yeah, you know, I'm not really sure yet where I would say that I personally rank Ragnarok, but in the top 10, not bottom, and certainly toward the top five, I really enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed what it brought to the MCU. I enjoyed the ways that it expanded the MCU. It makes me want more. I would respect whatever decision Chris Hemsworth makes. He's been playing this character, as we've said, since 2011. So across this entire decade, he has played the God of Thunder. And, you know, that's exhausting. Being in this sort of shape, all of these poor actors and actresses, it's exhausting for them. So I would completely understand any of them walking away from the character for that reason they've all given so much but i still am a greedy little bitch and i want more chris hemsworth has said that he's certainly interested in doing another thor if taika waititi is involved there's all sorts of different directions they could go with the character i know he's enjoyed working with the guardians characters so maybe we could get an as guardians of the galaxy film who knows we don't know So much about what is still to come in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Only this week was the first three phases of the MCU dubbed definitively the Infinity Saga. And what comes next will be whatever it is. Will it have Thor? Will it have Cap? Will it have anyone? Will it have the Secret Invasion? Will it have Secret Warriors? Who knows anything other than we got Spidey, so that's pretty cool. And at least on this show, we still have a few more left before Endgame, including Black Panther coming up next. What were your thoughts on Black Panther as we went into it? I remember being blown away by every moment of Black Panther. I was so impressed with the film, top to bottom. It was such a refreshing and... I don't want to oversell it and say life-changing experience but i certainly felt like i'd never seen anything like it and going back i feel like i'd never seen anything like thor ragnarok either and this is such a great time to be a comic fan and it was such a great moment of creativity it deserved the oscars everybody was a breakout star everybody was a breakout performance everybody was exciting and riveting and new and daring and creative and every part of it fired on so many excellent levels i'm i'm a huge fan i think it's a really excellently nearly perfectly made film i agree wholeheartedly i love a lot of the concepts i love the characters it's cultures and concepts that i am not familiar with but greatly enjoyed being introduced to and seeing portrayed and You know, a lot of these characters that I have encountered throughout the MCU, you know, Black Panther, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy are people that myself, who only had a tangential understanding of Marvel Comics, I was not as familiar with because these are the ones that I don't think were as hyped to young kids so much as, you know, the ones that we got as the iconic six from... The Avengers, or at least really more the iconic four, Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, Captain America, and Thor. And then Spider-Man, who now eventually we were able to add. Makes you wonder what the MCU would have been like if we had him from the beginning. And I think we're going to be saying that about the X-Men very soon. So 
until we make our way to Wakanda and get our hands on some vibranium, Kevo, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. Don't forget you can check out our work on Kid Riot, our awesome, diverse, and inclusive comic over at KidRiotComics.com. You can also check out our other shows like X's for Podcast, where we, along with our boyfriend Jonah and our best friend Kyle, take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giants as X-Men number one. I'm also on Now and Again with my childhood best friend Chris, where we take a look at the Now That's What I Call Music series in order. If you like what you hear, check out the other shows on the Cage Club Network and check out the Patreon. Maybe help shape the future of the network. You can also check me out on Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. This has been Thor Magndoodle. Cracker, bye-bye. I just, I just needed to know, does anyone still find little old C. Hemi attractive? Am I still a hunk? Of course, Chris. You're a hunk. You'll always be a hunk. <laughs> no, this was bad and you're weird now. <laughs>